was the Smiths with a track called Handsome Devil from the album A Hatful of Hollow. This is David Easton. This is the C86 show. Welcome once again to another thrilling ride of life as I'll be bringing you songs you know, some you don't and some you should, always playing the finest in indie pop and as you probably gather, each week I have a special guest. This week it is going to be the turn of the chameleons because I spoke and caught up with Mark Burgess a couple of weeks, months ago to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that kind of groovy stuff that happens when you're in an indie band from back in the day right through to the present. So I'm going to have that interview that's probably going to be edited into four easy-to-digest little segments. But to get the party rolling, I think I should play your favourite and mine. Yes, I am Mr Predictable. This is Swamp Thing.
I think that probably blew your mind. That was The Chameleons and the track uh, titled Swamp Thing. That came from their 1986 album titled Strange Times. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 show. And this week's special guest is going to be Mark Burgess from the band, who I spoke to a few weeks, months ago, to find out more about life in the chameleons and much much more anyway a bit of admin because i know you love that if you want to contact me we you can via facebook twitter just go to at c86 show i will be there and also just to say that i've been doing this show for over two years and i've i've managed to archive them all and each week is a special guest so if you want to find out any more information about indie bands you can go to pen and paper dear listener um yes it's all on sort of itunes spotify podbean and also mixcloud just go for c86 show and they'll all be there and you'll just go wow he needs to get a life but anyway never mind now before we have the first part of the interview i think we should play another track by the band just to get you into the groove and into the move and i think this will also blow your mind this is going to be titled he says looking up and looking down yes perfume garden you knew i was going to play that Or did you? I don't know. Anyway, take it away. Show your hands, I can make 
Mesmerizing sounds from the Chameleons. That's a track titled Perfume Garden. That came from their 1985 album. What does anything mean? Basically, who knows? I have not the answer to that. But the one thing I do know is that coming right up is going to be the first part of my interview with Mark Burgess from the band, where we'd been talking like old people do for ages. And then I thought I should ask a question about the early years and what happened or what was the scene and what was he into before the chameleons. And this was his answer. Mark, what was your musical adventures pre-chameleons? Tell us. Take it away. Not really. I, I did. Yeah, I had, a, I, I had a kind of a sort of a lampoon punk band thing with a a friend of mine who ended up going on to going to Oxford and... Um, it was just something to do, you know. We were just clowning around. It was just something. I guess like that's what you did in the late seventies, you know. If you, you you formed a band, it didn't matter that you could whether you could play or not, you know. Didn't. In fact, it was probably better that you when you when you couldn't play. Yes, you know. and were you because were you aware? You must have been aware of of the kind of the the kind of the general musical vibe around the place. Yes, because cause coming from Norwich, we don't have a huge amount of bands. And, right. then, and 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 much of a musical scene to get excited about. So obviously, which is ideal for people from other parts of the country, because then we can jump on there, you know, on the, onto that bandwagon instead. But you, you know, Manchester, obviously, from that CD, you can see you were just thinking, God, there were a lot of bands happening. So you must have been bumping into each other constantly. Um, we, yeah, I wouldn't say we're bumping into each. I mean, there, there was an effort um, when when I first started playing. When I first started to learn how to play, and um, there was a, an effort started by a guy called Dick Witts, who was um, I knew him off the television actually because he did he did a, a few minutes he did like this little arts kind of thing on um, Granada Reports, but apparently he was uh, he was a trained musician. He was he used to work for the LA Orchestra, and then he had an accident or something, couldn't 
it was a percussionist originally, that's all I heard. He formed a band called The Passage, and I got really into The Passage. I thought, I loved that band. And uh, he got to, he got a, a thing together called the Manchester Musicians Collective, where uh, the idea was, it was kind of a cooperative of, 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 of bands in Manchester, and the idea was that you went to it, you joined up to it, you signed up to it, and um, you kind of, it was like a mutual help thing, you know, one band got a gig, they'd get another collective band to do the opening and vice versa. And the two biggest bands that were like joined up to this thing were The Fall and uh, Joy Division. So we used to go to some of the meetings and so obviously you'd bump into people there, you know, that um, as as time went by, you got more familiar with them and their bands like Chris Seavey, for example, was, uh, um, you know, in around that time and... Um, a couple of people, you know, a couple of other people, uh, George, I remember from the unit, so I ended up working with uh, Graham Fallows and Jilted John, and some of the guys from Spherical Objects used to go to these meetings and um, get-togethers and stuff. Um, so, yeah, I mean, from that point, but we weren't actually, I was never really, you know, it, I didn't kind of rub shoulders with all these people that were making music in Manchester. I didn't have anything to do with them, really, to be quite honest. None of us did. Um, we just kept that very much to ourselves. Yes, and one thing that that sort of seemed to sort of play a big part in in that sort of musical world during the eighties, which a lot of people forget, and or, or, or sort of especially if you weren't really around at the time, was there was a huge amount of unemployment and angst and and the rise of Thatcherism and sort of and then obviously there was the unemployment benefit period, and then there was the job seekers allowance, and and that seemed to give a lot of people an opportunity to at least sign on, have a bit of money, and get their rent paid while sort of probably. I don't know, drinking, smoking, and and sort of and playing the guitar, at least having something to do. So, did did any of that world? Um, yeah, no, you, not at all. No, I was a student. Me at the time, I was a student, and then uh, I was going for a place at Poly. I wanted to do drama, so um, I was actually a student, and uh, Reg was an art student, and Dave was an art student for a bit, and then and then he got a job as a graphic artist in Manchester. Um, I think it was. I think it was. He, oh, I can't remember the name of the agency, but it was. It was. He was a. Yeah, he went to work as a graphic artist in Manchester. And we were all doing that while we were getting the chameleons together. So you know, we weren't part of the. We weren't really part of the dull culture. No, because you know? I saw. I mean, to... I, I mean, I at the time I lived at home, and um, if I'd gone just signed on the dole for you know to, to kind of subsidise a an artistic. You know, uh, bohemian lifestyle. My father would have just absolutely battered me, he would because he, he wouldn't hold, didn't hold for that kind of thing. My father was staunch working class, like you know, you work for a living, and uh, if I can't get a job anywhere, then I get a job with him. But I don't go down to the door. I don't do that. So he would have killed me if I if I if I'd kind of been living that kind of bohemian sign. And even like, much later on, the others. Um, I mean, I shouldn't really be telling you this, but much later on, you know, that's that's the direction Dave went in. Later on, um, you know, when the industry spat us out again, and we went through a period of like kind of struggling, Dave uh, in particular went down that route, and it was something that I felt really, you know, um, strongly about because I don't believe that you should be doing that unless you really need it, you know. Yeah. So I, I, I didn't. I didn't hold. I didn't hold with. Uh, with artists, you know, living off the welfare state and then going out writing uh, punk poetry, 
you know, because I, I couldn't understand how you can be, you know, an anarchist and be uh, have anarchistic views and stuff, and then go down with you think holding your cap out to the, to the welfare state every week. No, well, yeah. absolutely. No. I just remember Johnny Marr also had a very strong sort of work ethic, and and it wasn't, you know, there wasn't any, you know, I'll just go and sign on and bum around for a bit. You know, it just didn't. It wasn't part of his kind of um, orbit. And I sort of remember quite a lot of people. I mean, a lot. I knew a lot of people who went that way because they kind of thought it was quite fun to just go on the dole, and other people who didn't. But, but obviously, um, yes, I, I can't. I mean. I have, I think, I've, I've like sort of been twice in my life when I've had to do it. I mean, I've, I've had like no choice. I had to literally do it. It was either that or go, go completely under. And they weren't for very long periods of time. And I can absolutely tell you that there was nothing fun about it whatsoever. It was a horrible experience. And um, I mean, it's a, as an expert, as something to to endure. It's got obviously got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse over the years, rather than better. Which you know. Yes. Um, for a, for a rich society, I, I kind of that makes me really angry that um, we that you know we still call it progress yet it's actually a retrogress. You know what I mean? Because it was a something to be proud of that 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 we'd have a welfare state and have a you know like the national health service is something to be proud of and the welfare state was something to be proud of and um, you know the the, the 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 ethic that we've evolved now of being like really heartless because it's. And, you know, and I dare say a lot of it is to do with the abuse, you know. People abusing the system makes it worse for the people that really, you know, have no choice but to rely on it. So, um, you know, I always found it really patronising for people who were like bohemians living on the dole, you know. when they, they didn't, Nobody really, you know, they didn't really have to do that, you know. There's like, we, I've, I've done it when I've really ha- had to do it when I've had no choice, as I say, a couple of times in my life and I've, it's a horrible experience that uh, I would do pretty much anything not to, to uh, not to not to go there, not to not to claim Absolutely. welfare. So you know, going going back to the band because most because people normally have a few years sort of making you know rehearsing, getting together before anything happened. How quickly did you did you sort of go from sort of the early years to suddenly <coughs> thinking, God, we could cut a record to? Because often you know, with it was immediate. It was pretty much immediate. Um, I mean, at the time, the climate was that making your own record was the thing, that, that was the way you went. It was, it was relatively easy to do. And then there was a, a distribution cartel that you could hand it over to, that you could use. This, you know, there was like a distribution cartel. So getting it, making a record yourself and getting it distributed wasn't that difficult. Um, it became accessible. And I think it came in the wake of the Buscocks. And the Buscocks were the first band to do it. And I think it was the Falls management that financed that record. So the, the, the Falls management financed the Buscocks record. And the Buscocks made their own record, which was Spiral Scratch. And then they, they kind of showed everybody else how to do it. So in the wake of that, lots of people were doing that. So um, as soon as I kind of like, I was, I'd formed this band and, and, and Dave and Reg were in another band and they'd seen me and they knew that I, what I was, you know, they, well, they'd seen me play and they wanted to make a record, a joint record together. And, um, you know, they were going to finance it and everything. And then um, we got into the studio for that's when the first time I ever went into a recording studio was to record these tracks with this joint record. And then, and then their band sort of disintegrated and my guitar player was got to Oxford. So they said to me, well, you know, join our band. So I joined Dave and Reg 
in the middle of all this. And then our focus shifted then to uh, writing songs that we felt were strong songs. Um, we, we, that's what we said, we'd concentrate on writing our songs. And within six months, we were on CBS. So it was really fast. Yes, blimey, that was fast. And obviously, yeah. one of the people that really helped with all this world, and he was sort of the gatekeeper, was John Peel as well. So yeah. did yeah. he... Did that, did his kind of, because obviously you did quite a... Oh, know. yeah, I mean, it was, it was pivotal. Um, but we weren't trying to get on the show to um, to get anywhere. Or, 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 oh, excuse me, sorry, sorry, hang on. Sorry about that. <laughs> the, the TV was on pause and then suddenly it wasn't. Um, yeah, he, he, we, I mean, we weren't trying to get onto his show to get anywhere or further our career. We were just trying to get onto his show because we were fans of his show. Yes. That was that was the only motivation for wanting to get onto John Peel's show was because we listened to John Peel Monday to Thursday. It was a ritual. We used to go around to our mate's flat and get stoned and listen to John Peel. That's what we did in the evenings. And um when we weren't practice when you know, we had a we had a practice three times a week, but we'd always end up back at Alistair's by uh, by um I think it was like I think he went on the air at about ten o'clock. That's right. Um, yes. And uh, ten till midnight, and um, we just listened to John Peel every night. So just getting on the show was mo- was our motivation, you know. Indeed, the John Peel show. It was a religious experience back in the day. Anyway, this is David Eastall. This is the C eighty six show, and that's the first part of my interview with Mark Burgess. Still more of that to come, but I think we should break it up with some music. Let's play something. Yes, this is going to be. Second skin. I know there was a lot to choose from, but that's the one I'm going to go for. For the moment, you never know, there will be more.
So you just want that to go on forever. That is the Chameleons with a track titled Second Skin. And that came from their, um, I do believe, their 
debut album, yes, Script of the Bridge. And that was recorded in Cargo Studios in Rochdale, England. Do make a note, I will test you at the end of the show, just to make sure you're paying attention. And also, if you, if you were listening to the first part of that interview, um, we were talking about a compilation that came out on Cherry Red Records. And this, I think it was two years ago or 18 months, Manchester, north of England. This was a seven CD box set featuring 143 tracks. I'm not going to name them all, but you get the gist. It's going to be full of fantastic songs. And if you uh, want to track that down, it is available still. So um, that was the compilation. This now is going to be the second part of my interview. And... um, if you just noticed what I'd done there earlier, I did mention Cargo Studios in Rochdale because a few people I've interviewed, um, a member from, how do you believe, uh, Section 25, talked about kind of recording there and it, it being a particularly special space and a brilliant place for um, recording albums. Well, probably that's the only thing you're going to record there with the wonderful and legendary Martin Hannett. And this is the question that I'd asked... Um, Mark as well. What made Cargo Studios in Rochdale so special? And this was his answer. Mark, take it away. Uh, the room, the live room, the live room. It was like um, it, it had an absolutely fantastic sounding room, and it was nobody knew quite why it was. Um, I mean, you know, we actually got Steve Lillywhite into Cargo because um, we were working with Steve Lillywhite on our first record, and. Um, it was expensive. <laughs> you know? yes. So uh, we, when we came to do the B-side, we said, well, we'll do the B-side at Cargo where we did all our demos. You know, we, we'll, we'll go to Cargo and do and do um, the B-side at Cargo. And when Steve Lillywhite found out we were doing the B-side at Cargo, he was like, no, I'll, okay, you know, I, you know, I'll come to Cargo and do the B-side. I want to do both sides of the record. So he came to Rochdale, uh, to Cargo, um, to do the B-side, and he walked in and he saw the place and he's like, what the, f-? you know, he didn't say what the f- are you doing here, but he gave us that vibe of like, what the f- are you doing it in here for? Um, and we just said, well, because it's a really great studio, we love working here, so we're not afraid enough. So the f- he just he, so he just rolled up the carpet. So I mean, that's the first thing he did was he went in there and he just like saw the carpets and the, just rolled all the carpets up and we started work. And when he heard the room, he, ap- he apologized to us. He said like, you know what? He said, I'm, I'm really sorry that I had that attitude. He said, because this is like one of the best sounding rooms I've ever heard. And we're going, well, yeah, because this is where, you know, this is where fucking Unknown Pleasures was recorded. It was mixed at Strawberry and whatnot, but it, the, bulk, the, bone, the bare bones of it was recorded here. And um, all, a lot of Zoo records were made there. Um, a lot of the early Four records were made there. Gang of Four recorded there. Um, I think even the Bunnymen recorded there. Well, yeah, the Zoo. Yeah, Zoo, Bunnymen recorded there as well. Yeah. Um, we obviously, you know, we were the last band ever to work there um, yes. before, it shut, before it shut down. It's and, you know, we, and we made our first first album there. Yeah, and it just has one of those, because a lot of people just go, oh, yeah, Cargo, you know, in Rochdale, and it's like, oh, yeah, what, what, what is it about it that, um, you know, because Rochdale isn't a place that most people go for a holiday, is it? So... One of those strange no, things. I definitely don't think, not. No, because a lot of but, but they used to come from all over from Europe to record there in the end. 
Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And a lot of bands, I, I sort of realise, have the the great five year narrative. You know, they get together two years, but you, in your case, quite immediate. You know, they, and then John Peel played it. John Peel session first album, then oh, tricky second album. If anybody ever does America, things don't go terribly well, from what I've gathered. So, how did your kind of story go? Because obviously, you you sort of went until the sort of almost the end of the eighties, and um, yes, well, we would, we we. Well, you know, I don't know. It's how it, it would just take a long, long time to uh, to tell that story. But um, you know, it was I, the one thing that's been at the centre of, of 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 our career at that time was just conflict. We were we were in conflict with everyone. Um, we wouldn't be told. How to, how to do what we did when we, we we had very strong ideas of how we wanted to to be um and um it wasn't you know in line with with you know what was going on in the 80s we didn't want to have those daft haircuts we didn't want to wear those silly clothes we didn't want to sp- spend thousands and thousands of of pounds of our budgets on silly videos we we didn't want to do anything that we had that we didn't feel had anything to do with music, you know, and that was the irony of it was that once we got once we signed to um, to labels, you spent ninety five percent of your time wading through bullshit that didn't really have anything to do with recording, writing, or performing music. It was all promotion and 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 self publicizing, you know, it was all. Uh, getting doing interviews in the right magazines and getting pictures that look right and having the right kind of haircut and you know, but yeah, it was just all crap that we couldn't relate to. Yes, that... we, we were coming. We were a punk band, basically. You know, well, we weren't a punk band, but we were our attitude. We were punks. Our attitude was punk. You know, and and, and we got um, people around us that wanted us to make us. And you know they wanted us to be what what you two were, and we're like we're trying to explain that we've got more in common with the fall than we've got with you two, you know, our simple minds or whatever, you know. Yes. Because we had such a big sound, we had like we had this huge sound. Um, we created this massive sound that, in people's minds, we sh- we, we were we should be playing stadiums, and we're like, well, we don't really want to do that, or, you know. It, it, we don't really want to do that. We we're we're a, a live back. We know we, we we like I said. You know we had more in common with the fall. Oh, we felt we had more in common with the fall. I felt I had more in common with Mark Smith than I had ever had with someone like Bono or Jim Kerr. <laughs> yes, this is true. I know. Well, they 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 sort of went for that particular path, didn't they? They kind of realised that. <laughs> They had the eye on that prize more than sort of. Um, I mean, a band like the, you know, like um, bizarrely, you know, like the Smiths. I mean, there was they were never going to last that long because there was so much conflict. But they were also they weren't going to play any, you know, the game of of the the music business, which is always a bit. No, tricky. well, I mean, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, with the Smiths, there's a really good example of a of a, you know, a quality pop a quality pop group that uh, you know that have real credibility and a real you know, um, an artistic, a real, a truly artistic streak, but they're a pop band, right? So, you know, even they got into hot water and they were, they're an extremely intelligent pop group. 
so that even they got, um, you know, in the end with rough trade, it all went foot out of shape with them. So, I mean, you know, you, you know, you have this idea that when you get to independent, you know, well, that's what we did. We went from, you know, from this massive major label and we thought, right, well, you know, we finally found it, you know, uh, a place in, 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 in an independent label thinking that when you're on an independent label, everything's like, you know, really cool and idealistic. And it's, it's not, I mean, we had total artistic control. Yes, but we never got, but we got ribs off. We got a few rubbed. So, I mean, <laughs> you couldn't win. You know, we had a, we we had a situation where we could express ourselves artistically and have control over our artistic, you know, um, and we're like we didn't we were, we were selling sixty thousand, seventy thousand albums, and we weren't getting paid anything. Yes. Right. So I mean, you know, so that that's a whole different kind of conflict then. So you constantly we were constantly in conflict, and it got to the nineteen eighty six or something, and I was exhausted with the conflict. It was just one thing after another. We ended up with uh, Geffen Records. We signed with Geffen Records. It was a, it was a, the, we felt it was the best choice at the time. You know, we're like, where are we going to go now? And um, we met with Geffen Records, and this seemed like, you know, okay. It seems the way we were advised that that was seemed okay, and we went with it. And again, it just ended up with more conflict. And in the end of it, I just got absolutely just fed up of fighting everyone. Yeah. And the last conversation that I had was like, well. What are we going to do now? Well, we've got to get back, got to get off Geffen, and we've got to get this, and then we've got to get that, uh, get away from them, and get away from these. And I'm like, I'm just saying, like, nothing's got anything to do with music anymore. It's all business. So you know, that's what happens. You know, your the irony is that before you you get into the industry, when you're writing your songs in your little room wherever you are. It's all about the music. You're turning up every every you know three days a week with your mates, and you're trying to craft your sound and write your songs. It's all about the music. And then as soon as you get that big thing that you're trying to chase, which is a break, as soon as you get your break, it becomes not about the music anymore. In fact, it seems to like things seem to conspire to stop you from making music. It's weird. There you go. It is a murky world, but um, one that still gives us lots of pleasure. Thank God someone wants to do it. Anyway, that's the second part of my interview with Mark Burgess from The Chameleons. And um, this is David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can. On Facebook, Twitter, just go to at C86 Show. I will be there. And also, as I said earlier, all the shows have been archived. You can find them on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean and Mixcloud. And uh, I've been doing it for over two years, and that's a lot of indie bands. I think I've nearly got up to 200 now. So, um, yes, anyone you've ever sort of been tempted to listen to, I've probably got them. Anyway, we're going to play another track, and then more chat. This is going to be The Chameleons. I mean, if you like The Chameleons, fill your boots. This is just going to be solid, gold, easy action for the next, um, well, 60-odd minutes. But this is um, a track titled The Fan and The Bellows. It is amazing. Just broke us off. I had a whole hundred straight. 
Chameleons with a track titled The Fan and the Bellows. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 show. This is the third part of my interview with Mark Burgess, where I've been talking about the publishing and also about that period well, uh, of the band when things were getting much more difficult. And this was around the 86 period where um, they just released Strange Days. But also there was the sudden death of, I do believe, their... Um, band's manager, Tony Fletcher, who died suddenly in 1987. And um, I'd sort of asked him and Mark how that had been, which I know is a bit of a silly question, I suppose. But um, yes, how they how things were going at that particular period and year. And this was uh, Mark's reply. Mark, take it away. Yeah, our friend, our friend died, yeah. He was very close to us and had been kind of looking out for us. And um, yeah, he... he he was a he had a huge impact on us and um he died very young he was only 42 when he died yes did, yeah. and did that cuz cuz i sort of interviewed a member of lush or two of them and and they said you know when they you know they had a death the drummer died and they just thought actually we just can't do this anymore and we we're not enough so was that kind of a, a decision no cuz he, he wasn't in the band the guy was he was more as a managerial right thing yes but he wasn't actually in the band but yeah, because he was he was your 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 manager. But the, did that just feel like you just you know was that did that just make it an easy decision to sort of quit at that stage or to to stop the? Band? Yeah, I mean that's it was definitely um, a factor for sure because yeah yeah it was like you know with Tony not around, do I really want to carry on with this the way it is and like the way I knew it was going to go because he was holding it together really. Yeah. You know, by this time frictions that would have torn the bar you know we would have we wouldn't have even made it to 80 we wouldn't have made it to 1987 if we um 
if Tony hadn't have been around. Yeah, I know. If I hadn't met Tony, if Tony hadn't been there, it would have, in fact, it would have splintered, a lot, you know, two or three years before. Did you, when you just look back at that period, it, I mean, were there many times you thought, this is great, or was it always like, Jesus, that was just hard work? But you made great music. Uh, yeah, there was times when it was, it was, it was great, but it became fewer and fewer and fewer, you know. I think after about, after 85, I think up to about 85, those moments where you, that, 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 you know, you felt it was really great that made it worthwhile were all but gone and it just became a struggle and, uh, and, and, and and a nasty kind of experience. Yeah, I mean, I actually, I actually did one. I mean, I, I, I took off in '86 um, for about three or four months. I left the band for about, you know, I just left the band, um, and I went to Jerusalem for three, three months. I lived in the old city of Jerusalem for three months, and um, I wasn't going to come back. You know, I mean, I was going to, I was just going to not come back. Um, I ended up coming back after a few months, and. Um, you know, a couple of weird synchronistic things happened that kind of put me back in touch with um, Tony Fletcher and, and the management and everything. And I ended up doing an American tour, but I wasn't, you know, you know, I was, it was really tenuous. By by 86, it had got really, really tenuous. It was just, a, you know, and so losing Tony was the last straw for me, personally. I wasn't the first to leave the band, though. John was, John, John, the drummer, John, left first he came and told me that he'd left the band so I've left I've got my kit I've got my stuff I'm I'm leaving the band and that's you know he, he kind of left you know but he'd done it before so I don't know how seriously I remember thinking uh you know I took it pretty seriously at the time you know I think now the guy's serious I mean I really you know I knew that he, he wasn't he wasn't like the other times he was really he meant it um mm. so I mean it didn't but I mean after a few weeks I followed him Yes, you didn't. Well, you weren't tempted to go on a kibbutz at all, were you? Because that was very popular. You weren't tempted to go on a kibbutz. That was always a very tempting. You know, that was a thing no. in the eighties. No, people. what do I do that for? No, <laughs> no, I'm gonna no, I'm gonna slave away in the kibbutz for like what pound a day for what? No, well, you have free Fuck that. <laughs> no. So when you, you so when the band finished and then you sort of brought you know you had another musical moment with Sun and the Moon. Sun and the Moon. Did you did that feel like quite a relief that you could be in a different outfit with with a different sort of uh, dynamic? That was the idea in the beginning. I mean, you know, um, I I got a phone call from um, John Lever, um, and um, he was he was saying that he was putting this together with Andy Clegg, who I knew we'd, we'd recruited Andy to play some keyboards on the tours. Um, because you know some of the back then we used to use strings a lot on the, the script stuff and something like like we because we we played strings on the album and we used to use Andy to do that live and uh, so I knew him and um, he said he was putting this thing together with Andy Clegg and they asked me if I meet with him and talk about maybe doing it which I did and um, and then he, and and then I, knew, I kind of vaguely knew Andy Whitaker. Um, from this band that Andy Whisker had with Andy Clegg, music for Aborigines, I've seen him a few times. <clears throat> so I kind of knew Andy Clegg, Andy Whitaker. Uh, so after talking to him about it, I decided to give it a try. And that 
was exactly what he's just said was the motivation. It was like getting back to just sitting in someone's living room and, and with guitars and working songs out because I hadn't done that in a long time and, you know, with people that you like to be around. Um, but it didn't really last very long because I got to realise that, you know, essentially I was just being used. <laughs> I was being... Because, like, Geffen didn't want to let me go, right? Because right. I, I, I was... You know, I'm not the songwriter in the band, but I was the principal songwriter in the band. What that means is that, you know, when it came when it comes to melodies and words and stuff, that's me, right? So, um, they, you know, they didn't want to let me go. So it's like whatever I was involved with, Geffen were going to put money in into, understand? Yeah. And I came and I came to realise that that was the only fucking reason that um, they wanted me in the group because they just wanted to step into the shoes of the chameleons. Yeah. So, so once I realised that, I lost all interest in the project. God, it's kind of the, the the admin of music is a kind of a murky world, isn't it? You kind of yeah. Once once they sign you, I didn't realise because I thought anyone. I just thought you know they would say, oh God, we just you know we spent it on Geffen and um, we spent it on the band, the Chameleons, and then once you leave, they just kind of go. Here's the thing, right? It doesn't matter how close friends you are, right? It doesn't matter how close or how tight you are as mates. When you get exposed to the kinds of things that happen in this industry, it's going to it's going to wreak havoc with those relationships, and cracks are going to form. And you know, tr- you know people that you would that you that you trusted profoundly, you'll not trust anymore, and things like that. It's just really bizarre. There's very few bands that can kind of withstand that. A couple have, haven't they? You know, like, look at Rolling Stones, keep keep together and keep working. You two kept together and kept working for years. And, uh, you know, um, it, I mean, it is possible, but you'll, you you see it every time, you know. You mm-hmm. see it, like, no matter how tight they are. I mean, look how close look how close the Beatles were and look what happened to them in the end. I know. That was you know tough. what I mean? It's like it, that, and that's the that's the worst part of it. I think that's the 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 most insidious part of this industry is what it does to profound relationships and 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 the you know how you can lose you can have friends that you've had since since ten years old and and lose it and lose those friendships you know irre, irre, irrevocably irrevocably lose those friendships and that's the the real evil of this industry. You know? Yeah, it's not money. The money's that fuck money. You know, money isn't important. Well, absolutely, it's the, it's the relationships. But but with the band, you know, because it's obviously you know you know one of the best stories I always think is the Fleetwood Mac story because you know they just keep it going. You know, even though they've you know like from the sixties, it's changed an awful lot apart from well, actually, there has two members, aren't they? But you know, there's all the other dynamic, and and you know they kind of need each other. So with the Chameleons, you did sort of then reconvene again didn't you sort of when we went into 2000 for some live dates and yeah so yeah. how did that feel sort of bringing it back and and getting the it felt main... good it felt good in the beginning it was like anything before it felt good in the beginning yeah um it felt great in the beginning but um again you know it's just being i was i was being used <laughs> it's just being used it wasn't real. It wasn't you know? It wasn't uh, genuine. It wasn't sincere. I was just being used to to you know put money in people's pockets. That's all I was being used for. 
But you did then quickly bring an album, well, not quickly, but you brought out your full, the fourth album, which was yeah. Why Call It Anything. So obviously you, you still had a, a sort of, a, the you know, sort of a creative kind of, I don't know, the, the input to still make it happen and to sort of write, record, you know, and, and deal with the dynamics of being in the band. Um. Well, it was, I, it, I don't know. I mean, it was, I didn't know we were going to, I, I didn't, we, were, we Dave and I did an interview with the Manchester Evening News about the shows, and the guy said to, uh, said to he says, well, so what's going to happen, you know, next after the shows? And Dave just immediately said, oh, we're going to make a record, and that's the first I'd heard of it. So I was kind of looking around at him and going, oh, are we? okay, thinking, you know, I didn't say that, obviously, in front of the journalist, but I'm like, thinking, oh, that's a, that's a surprise, okay, well, all right. So it was all kind of a bit of a surprise. And then, you know, again, you know, we started work on that record and um, suddenly it became like the old days, you know, the bad old days of laboriousness and not getting certain people to, to turn up at the studio when, when they should be there. And, you know, writing it was just a, a struggle. And uh, it, just became, it just, and I'm thinking, now, you know, but we were committed by then, you know. Yes. But I mean, I like the, you know, and then I had a personal tragedy in the middle of it, which, you know, uh, didn't help. So, I mean, it's amazing that I'm amazed that that record even got made, you know, under the circumstances of the time. So, I mean, it wasn't really, you know, by the end of it, I'd had enough again. I'd had enough of it. I mean, no, it's just, you know. This is bullshit. Because by the by the end by the middle of by the middle of recording the album, I realised I was just being used again. I was just being used. <laughs> just being, I was just being used by people that I cared about. You know, that was that's the thing. That's the worst thing about it is that you know you care about these people that are, you know that you're being used by people that you care about, and that's yes. not you know that's not good. But then I was watching. So, I was watching a concert. You know, the Chameleons, Fox. You know, mm. from is oh, it, Vox. Yeah, that's yeah. a completely different thing. Oh, is it? But, yeah, Vox is a completely different thing. Chameleons, Vox is like the most enjoyable experience of Chameleons music I've ever had. You know, right. So just, just how does that work? Because I just thought, oh, right. You know, because it was in. It was only about four years ago, and there was a live, you know, concert that you, you know, which is on YouTube. Well, somewhere. actually, Vox has been playing together for longer than the original Chameleons has. Hmm. Um, Vox has been in existence longer than the original Chameleons was, and it's basically making you're playing Chameleons music with people that have a really deep, profound love of the music. You know. Right, so it's so it gives it a different dynamic and a different energy because they they care about the music way more than the original band ever did. And there isn't the 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 tricky dynamic that you have to deal with at the same time. Well, no, I mean there's no there's there's no bullshit. It's just uh, an enjoyable, you know, for the most part. I mean, you know, um, people have you know people have come and gone in boxes. Some people have played in boxes for a little bit and gone on. To, you know, bands evolved. It's it was an evolution to get it to the, to get it to the where the band is right now. It's been a, a you know an evolution, but um, for the most part, you know, it's been it's way 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 more enjoyable. Although you know, I've been doing it a little bit longer than I originally thought I would 
you know, I'm doing it longer than I planned. Yes. And do you still sort of find that there's people who have started to or have just started to discover the band? So you're not just playing yeah. to the original, you know, audience who yeah. are sort of aging, but new people that are going, my God. Yeah. Yeah. There's people that have got into Chameleons after seeing Chameleons Vox. And, there's, you know, obviously I've got a lot of young people that have come because they're, you know, their dads have the, have the albums in their collections and stuff like that. Kind of like on the last tour, I was meeting kids that are like 15 or 16 that were players and are, you know, getting into playing themselves. And they they really got into the band. Um, and I'd never heard it live, but I'd come to hear it live and were really... Um, blown away by it because we you know we, we 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 treat the music with a lot of respect you know in the beginning it wasn't about recreating the sound of the band or anything it was just about the spirit of the band it was about uh, you know uh people that i liked who loved the band playing those interpreting that music however they wanted to but then as it kind of grew we felt a bit of a responsibility to do it a little bit more authentically and get the sound of the band right and all that um and you know, since doing that, we, you know, it's kind of got, you know, much mushroomed. And um, the reaction that we get has been tremendous. And a lot of that, massive amount of that, are from people that, you know, even fucking around when the music was originally made. Yeah. You know, they're all, they're all young people. And, and um, yeah, that must be fantastic. I didn't, I had not... Yeah, know, that's why I do it. The only reason why I do it. If I was, if I was, doing, if I was only doing this... So people that were around when we made the record, who was just doing this to, you know, fifty-year-old people, uh, I wouldn't be doing it. Yes, I wouldn't. Be, I wouldn't be doing it. I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't want to get up there and do it. You know. And well, and, and also the interesting thing is that um, you don't have because I did. I can't remember the band, but there was a lot of tension with the original members. But the main person thought, actually, I just still want to make music, but I just need another. I just need to replace the original band because we just we've got too much history. There's too much that are going to kick off every time we get together. So, right. And that and that kind of sorted them. Out, you know, sorted him out. I think I can't remember. It was a band called Loop. I think. Um, yeah, and it was just like you know, we we just aren't. Even though you know they go back to childhood, you know, trying to get the band back together every five years just ends in a lot of grief. So I can see why right. sometimes just starting afresh is just kind of quite a relief. Yeah, it is. And and also... <laughs> but I mean, you know, like I said, you know, I've been doing this longer than I planned and it kind of, you know, gets to the point where, I'm, I mean, I've been touring solidly for 10 years. I've been solidly touring for 10 years. So, like, it doesn't leave you a lot of time to get anything else together. Especially as it becomes your bread and butter, you know, like live work is our bread and butter. So, you know, can't I've not been in the I've not been um, in a situation where I can say, right, you know what, I'm not going to tour for six months. I'm going to do something. Well, I'm going to write something. New. I've not been, I've not had the luxury of that. Um, although, you know, now I'm I'm actually putting something together right now that's going to be separate from Chameleon's Ox. That's going to be new music. But this is the first opportunity in all that time that I've had to do that. Yes. And obviously, oh, you, that's you, the downside of it. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, you managed to get away. You were in Thailand recently, which must have been a nice break. Yeah. <laughs> which is good. I just come back from two months in Thailand. Which is which is the best way to spend the winter. But how did you feel? Just <laughs> lastly, how did you feel about writing? You because you you know you're one of the people you know few people who've written a book about their sort of musical journey in you know with view from a hill. How did that feel when you sort of um, 
put pen to paper and started to sort of explore and sort of detail how, you know, that particular journey. Because that was quite... It was extremely cathartic, you know. It was was good. It was... um, I enjoyed the experience. I mean, I enjoyed... I enjoyed it. Obviously, I enjoyed it for for putting it out for the perspective it gave me. But I I actually enjoyed the process of writing. I enjoyed the discipline of sitting down for three or four hours a day writing at a desk. Uh, and um, putting it together and, um, you know, a lot of the humour that came out of it. And I, en- I enjoyed it because it, it, it helped me focus on all the positive things, all the good good, the good things, the good times that yes. we had. Um, so, it, you know, it, it was, um, yeah, it was extremely cathartic, yeah. Yeah. And just lastly, what would, you know, I know this is a bit of a, I don't know. Sometimes, yeah. I mean, what would you say to a, your your eighteen year old self, or or you know somebody that you thought, or, or just those those kind of key things that you thought, God, I wish I'd sort of knew that back then. But you only kind of learn it with age. I just wondered if there was anything in particular that you thought that would have been a really good thing to have known when I started out on that kind of interesting journey. Um, what would I say? Yeah, or just those, the key kind of, kind of some of the key points, you know, because some people say, oh, you know, I wish I'd enjoyed it more. I, I wish I hadn't drunk so much. I wish I hadn't taken drugs. Yeah, or... don't, don't waste a single moment. Don't waste any time. Don't waste any time. That's what I'd say. Yeah. Whatever you do, stay in the moment and don't waste any time because it's going to be gone before you even, before you know it, it's over. <laughs> You know what I mean? Yes, well, absolutely. Yeah. That's... Just, like, make the absolute most of every opportunity that you get and do not waste any time. Yeah. And when you sort of have reflected, did you go, uh, do you have some, you know, moments you thought, bugger, that was a bit of a pain? What do you mean? Well, I just wondered with, you know, being in the band and stuff like that with... Yes, either dr- taking drugs, drinking, or just kind of tricky dynamics. Just you know, wished you t- that no, you... the, t- the drink, the drinking, and the taking drugs was great. I loved it. I lo- I, I absolutely loved taking drugs. I don't do it anymore. No. Um, but um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know what I don't even you know why don't I do it anymore because it just doesn't have any. I don't doesn't hold any allure for me. It doesn't have any attraction for me. I don't see the point. <laughs> I don't see the point of it. But when I was younger, I took a lot of drugs and I enjoyed it. Yes. And I got a lot out of it. I mean, it wasn't just recreational. I mean, I mean, some of it was, you know, some of it was just going to a party and taking drugs or, you know, necking some acid and going out and making a load of noise where you're not going to be disturb anybody and things like that. But I actually did get a lot out of it. You know, creatively, I got a lot out of it. And it was, you know, um, I think it was a, it's a really great American comic called bill uh, was it bill hicks bill, bill hicks yeah remember what he said about uh hicks what he said about um taking acid and having sort of your your sort of mind and eye opened and sort of well he just said he said like you know if you're all, if anybody he said i think he said something like i think it was like i might be i might be romanticizing this but he, I, I seem to recall him saying to his audience hands up everybody who's anti-drugs and, uh, and then he'd say, right, all you people who've got your hands in your hair, throw away all your record collection. Just take all your big record collection and throw it in the bin. This is because they, I guarantee every single one of them is drug-induced. And he's kind of right, you know what I mean? All the great records that you like, 
probably are drug-induced records. So I've come as a result of uh, the uh, um, the writers experimenting with drugs. Absolutely. And that was certainly true of me. And that is going to be the last part of my interview with Mark Burgess from The Chameleons. A big thank you for giving me the time for that interview. And if you want to know any more information about the band, there is a Facebook page, Chameleons Vox. And if you go there, there's live dates and lots of interest and information because they're going to be playing quite a lot throughout the summer and even on December the 14th at the O2 Manchester. So put it in your diary. Anyway... Have a great week. This has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter. Just go to at C86 Show. I will be there. God knows why you want to contact me, but you might do. Who knows? Who cares? Anyway, once again, a huge thank you to Mark for that interview. And I'll leave you with a couple more tracks from the band. And let's face it, they were and are still amazing. Have a great week.